welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Oh Lord, I just think about that passage from the book of Ecclesiasticus and the ways that you called ordinary common people to show your glory. And uh, Lord, it wasn't the religious professionals, so to speak, of the culture. And as I think of all the vocations that are represented here, Lord, whether it's you know, project leaders or teachers, lawyers, um, those who are uh, staying at home, raising children, Lord, there are vocations that you have called us to, uh, single or married. And in those vocations, Lord, we have the opportunity as common people to show your glory. So would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is, as I mentioned before, Halloween. So happy Hallows even morn uh, to you this morning. And um, so I want to hear from the youngest among us. I mean, if you're older too, that's fine. But uh, how many of you uh, kiddos are going to be dressing up this evening? Yeah? Excellent. And, and I want to hear some of the things that you're going to be dressing up as. What are you going to be dressing up as? Lily, go ahead. What, Park Ranger? Hermione Granger. Hermione Granger. Yes, excellent. Wonderful. What else? Pikachu. Pikachu. Yeah? Taco. A taco? No. That makes me so happy. That is actually my favorite food. So that's wonderful to hear. Peter, yeah. Spider-Man. A, a fireman or Spider-Man? Spider-Man. Spider-Man. That's awesome. Sorry, I have hearing loss. It's not you. It's me. Um, and then what else? Oh, I love that. That is wonderful. I can't wait to see pictures of the butterfly with the wand. And what else? Batman. Batman? You were Supergirl. Supergirl. Woohoo! <laughs> Any others? Any others? Wonderful. I thought I heard someone, but maybe not. All right, so, yeah, Shepard, did you have, what are you going to be, Shepard? Pikachu. Pikachu. Oh, you got great minds think alike here. That's wonderful. Well, that's great. You know, I'm, so I'm also going to be uh, dressing up tonight, too. Uh, I'm going to be Father Brown, if you will. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, although I kind of am, because uh, I'm going to be Charlie Brown, so that kind of counts, right? Um, and uh, so Ashley will be Sally, and Cole's going to dress up as Snoopy tonight. We made a little costume for him. It's a lot of fun, and, and I, I, I'm really excited about doing this and meeting neighbors. And uh, it's one of the weird only holidays where you like there's it's an excuse to just meet your neighbors. So that's fun too. And this holiday, though, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but it's not particularly religious anymore. Um, And so it's obviously secularized in the culture more broadly. It's moved um, far from its origins, wherever one wants to trace them back to. I took my son on a walk the other night after it got dark because it's dark so early. And we, we were looking at all the people's Halloween decorations around us. It was really fun. 
And he loved seeing the lights. It's kind of the first year where he's cognizant enough to enjoy that. But then sadly, you know, some people move from fun, fall, frivolity to um, scary and dark and ghoulish, the half dead. Like it gets pretty dark pretty quickly. And uh, he didn't like those very much, which is to be anticipated. So Halloween was originally called All Hallows' Eve, uh, Eve like evening, and it had a much more hopeful beginning than the way that it's often celebrated now, uh, which is characterized by death and materialism, right? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's the eve of all saints, and um, we, where we remember those who followed Jesus before us in the centuries that came before us. And, and we remember how the grace of Christ was formed in them, uh, Father Ryan taught a few weeks back in our formation group on the church calendar, and he did a great job. And one of the things he talked about was the calendar of saints days that we have in the Book of Common Prayer. It's also called a sanctural calendar. And All Saints is a day to celebrate the image of Jesus being formed in common people. The, those who have gone before us, those that we know about that are in the church calendar, and those whose names are long forgotten uh, by us. So it's commemorated normally on November 1st. So tomorrow is All Saints Day. If we were an evening service, the the evening would begin All Saints, uh, but we're a morning service. And so you can celebrate it if the Sunday falls between October 30th and November 5th. You can celebrate it on that particular Sunday, which is why we've changed the colors in the sanctuary up. Uh, We are wearing whites. And there's uh, white uh, vestments all over the sanctuary. It reminds us of the glory of Christ uh, that is shown and born in those holy ones who have gone before us. And our series, I think, in Hebrews fits so well uh, into the themes of All Saints Day. If you go forward a couple chapters to Hebrews 11, you have one of the greatest lists in the entire New Testament of faithfulness to Jesus uh, as an assurance that Jesus is faithful to his people. And in our passage today, we learn about our loving God who never tires in the process of bringing us to final salvation, which is often called the rest in Hebrews, entering God's Sabbath. God is so patient And that patience is key. He's patient with his people throughout um, the history of salvation. And that same patience that he had with the centuries before, he extends to you and to me. And, And when you need that reminder that God is patient and that he is kind, what the author to this epistle to the Hebrews is telling us is to look at Jesus. Who, in Jesus, you have this human body that bears all the marks of somebody who has struggled through a life of obedience in all the ways that we do, except without sin. God loves us, right? And and because of God's love for us, we can trust that he is going to bring us through, uh, that everything that God brings us through is part of that journey towards our final salvation, that rest that he's secured for us. So as has been true in the book of Hebrews, the author brings up yet another argument that unless you are really steeped in the Hebrew Bible, it can be really unfamiliar to us. And so we're going to take a moment just to look at some of the arguments the author is making. He has spent all of chapter 7 up to the point that we read today contrasting two different kinds of priesthoods in the Old Testament. Most of us are familiar with the Levitical priesthood that was passed down through family ties, those who were of the tribe of Levi. 
And with that priesthood, there are obviously many, many, many priests. Uh, And there were many, many, many high priests between the time of Joshua and the time of Jesus. Some were great. Some were wonderful high priests. And some were really not wonderful high priests. Um, They were pretty disobedient. And so regardless of how faithful they were, even if they were very faithful high priests, they still committed inadvertent sins. And so they required cleansing too in the sacrificial system. So each year, what would happen is the high priest who was appointed the high priest would offer atonement for himself first. And then on behalf of the people, that day is called Yom Kippur. And uh, it is the day of atonement. And potentially here each day, there's actually a need for any priest who might commit inadvertent sins to be cleansed. Even if they're just accidental and not purposeful sins. But in that system, there's a need for daily cleansing. Outside the Levites, though, there is this other priesthood mentioned in the Old Testament. It's, it's pretty obscure. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, I know you all have that chapter memorized. Um, Genesis 14, Abraham takes 318 men and he goes to war. And he fights against those who are trying to... Um, Take captive Sodom, which would have included Lot at the time. And so he rescues Lot from being taken as a captive of war. After returning victorious from that battle, he's met by this mysterious man. We know nothing about him. Uh, This man is named Melchizedek. He's the the king of Salem is what it says. He's uh, He's also a priest is what he's called. And so here you have a guy whose name means my, uh, uh, the king of righteousness. And and you have, he's the king of Salem, which, you know, sounds like the word for peace. And and you have him as a king and a priest, which is not typical of Levites. Um, And this is before the law. And so this king priest brings Abraham bread and wine. Uh, as a priest of God Most High. Again, it sounds very Eucharistic. And he gives Abraham a blessing. And then in turn, Abraham gives one-tenth of the, the spoils from that war as an offering to the priest king of Salem. It's a really mysterious passage. It's an obscure reference. And we know nothing about Melchizedek. We don't actually hear anything about him in the rest of Genesis or the law. The next time we hear about Melchizedek is in one of the writings of King David. uh, Psalm 110, which is an enthronement psalm. And what it ultimately tells us about in Psalm 110 is the it talks about the enthronement of David's son and Lord, which ultimately points to Jesus. And that psalm pictures God as establishing a king who's also going to be a priest. So in verse 4, here, Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord is sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Right? This is the first time Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament since the book of Genesis. And so the literary and the symbolic way that Melchizedek functions as a priest, it finds its definitive reality in the person of Jesus who is the high priest of a new covenant. So he's not the first person. The the writer of Hebrews is not the first person to think about Melchizedek. If you were to go back with me to the first century, uh, you actually find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community have written an entire treatise about the person of Melchizedek. It's called 11Q Melchizedek, appropriately so. And um, in that, 
that anticipates a day where a priest like Melchizedek is going to procure the future forgiveness of Israel's sins. And it makes total sense because the Qumran community would have viewed the Jerusalem priests as completely corrupt, um, completely far from God. They were the ones preserving uh, true religion in their eyes. And so they're looking to an alternate priesthood. There's something about Melchizedek in the waters of first century Judaism. And so our writer, what he does is he connects the promise about David's son and his Lord in Psalm 110 to the person of Jesus. And what he says in verse 28 is that rather than a law or the passing on of the priesthood through imperfect people uh, and familial ties, what Psalm 110 swears is an eternal priesthood through an oath that is going to come later than the law. The oath, that, the oath appointed a son of David as a priest. It anticipates a divine son who has been made perfect forever. And there, so what he says is that there's no, essentially there's no other way back to God than through Jesus Christ. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices on his own behalf because in his perfect obedience, he's the one who became a sacrifice on our behalf to make atonement for his people forever. So we no longer have to look for a day of atonement. Yom Kippur is not a Christian holiday. Uh, We live in the rest that's anticipated in Christ's atoning work. How does Jesus act as a high priest for us? That's one of the questions that I had as I was reading this passage. What does it look like for Jesus to be my high priest? And it wasn't necessarily the work of the high priest to, let's say, take all people's requests or intercessions and then to bring them before God as like a list. Um, And so it's not that Jesus is at God's right hand just taking our requests and handing them over to the Father. And so the question is, what does Jesus do as the high priest? And for that, uh, I'm grateful that it is All Saints Day because we can look in the past and other people have asked that question way before we did and have probably thought of way better answers than I would have ever. Uh, And so one of those saints we're going to be looking at, somebody who has earned the title Doctor of the Church, his name is Gregory Nazianzus. He lived in the 300s. And in Oration 30, he actually talks about this passage in paragraph 14. And rather than quoting it, well, one he wrote in Greek, so I'm not going to quote that. But I'm going to summarize his argument here, uh, what he's saying. And he's saying that Jesus actually does um, forever live to make intercession for his people. That is true. And Jesus Christ is both God and he's man. And so he is the mediator between God and man for us. And he actually does plead for us. And his plea to God is for our salvation. And because he is still incarnate humanity. Remember, Jesus didn't lose his humanity when he ascended. Jesus is still incarnate humanity. The humanity that he has assumed and healed uh, is the humanity that is in his incarnation. Our salvation then is to share fully in the divine life of God. A phrase that you might call loving union with God. It's not that Jesus is always prostrating himself before the Father, giving just, um, you know, let's say fleshly requests of people. Um, That wouldn't be becoming of the victorious Son of God. And it would erroneously subordinate the Son to the Father, which Gregory is very careful to avoid. Now, it said Jesus' advocacy work for us has to do with the fact that Jesus suffered perfectly in his humanity. 
And that suffering gives the grounds for God to have patience. The result of God's patience is that you and I are brought fully into the life of God. There's a scripture somewhere that says, you know, the the patience of God uh, results in our salvation. Essentially, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but the patience of God is a big concept um, for the church. And, And God's patience results in our salvation or being brought into loving union with our creator. So we find help in the throne room of grace, knowing that Jesus has procured the final salvation for us. And that all the things that you and I are going through now are not unknown to God. They're not an accident to God. They are the means by which we are ultimately, uh, by the end of our lives, being brought into loving union with God. And so as we think about Jesus' priesthood, we're reminded that God has a sustained interest in our well-being. Right? That's one of the implications. As we look at Jesus' priesthood, it's a reminder that God is actually interested and he has a sustained interest in our well-being. One of the helpful other implications of the priesthood of Jesus is that you and I, we don't need to keep trying to atone for our sins. I find that helpful. Shame is a really powerful tool. And it's a strong voice that can inappropriately hold us back from experiencing the life that God has for us. And while it is true that sometimes shame can be a helpful tool uh, for a wrong that we've done to draw us to repentance... It's also true that there is a lingering voice of shame that becomes unhelpful very quickly. And it can make us think that you and I are the ones responsible to atone for our sins. I'm reminded of of a couple that I had heard about at one point where uh, these two that were married, one of them had an affair. And then when confronted to about it, he admitted it. And uh, rather than getting counseling or trying to get help from anybody, what they did is they decided to just stay in their marriage because and just not talk about it uh, because the perception of being divorced for them was worse than continuing in marriage uh, with deep hurt and unresolved conflict. So there was shame that was keeping them from seeking help. And, and as a result, they didn't believe that they actually needed God's healing. It turned into a, a calloused heart. Guilt and shame became weaponized within uh, their marriage. And, and then The one who had originally had the affair uh, functionally spent the entirety of their life trying to atone for that sin. We can't purchase satisfaction from sin. Another example, you know, we we might try and and buy our way out of the things that we have done or left undone. Um, No amount of spending is going to alleviate any guilt or shame. No amount of pleasure or comfort in this life is going to distract us from our need for healing and quite frankly is the foundation of many addictions. No amount of our own self-inflicted punishment is going to atone for the sins that we carry, right? Nothing we can do can atone for our sins. So because Jesus, the perfect son of God has been appointed as our high priest and he's offered himself once for all as a sacrifice for the sins of humankind, This is where the writer of Hebrews in verse 25 of chapter 7 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There is no time where God does not want to heal us. Right? That's important. There is no time where God does not want to heal his people. Jesus always stands ready to save us. And so... 
We may not even know those places where you and I need to be healed. And I think that's where faith and entrusting ourselves to the love of God is so powerful. Because when we entrust ourselves to the love of God and his atoning work, we're giving ourselves to his healing wherever it might be found. It's the relinquishing of control. So we may have come for physical healing. And then we're reminded of the ways that we're holding on to bitterness or resentment. We haven't forgiven somebody. And we didn't anticipate that Jesus would want to heal that. But we've entrusted ourselves to his healing. Perhaps there are misdeeds that we feel like we're trying to atone for from our family of origin. Or if we're older from some of the sins that we committed in our young adult life. It is an act of faith. To entrust those things to Jesus and to say, Jesus, I need you to heal them. Our own attempts to live life in the shadow of making up for our failures is an inappropriate act of control. It's an act of control that keeps us fully experiencing uh, from fully experiencing the love and the grace and the freedom of God. So Jesus atones for our sins. And when he atones for our sins, he also extends to us God's grace. And he ensures our way back to the Father. We can anticipate that Sabbath of God because of the work of Jesus. So we've come, uh, we have to come and we have to step towards him as an act of faith to do what Jesus has actually promised. I can imagine the audience here thinking, you know, should I just give up? Like I've, I've really messed up. And, and so I don't know, I don't know if Jesus can take care of this. Um, we might, like the original audience, think, you know, I'm pretty irredeemable. Like, I've gone this far down the road, so I might as well just keep going because there's no way Jesus can rescue me even from here. We might feel broken beyond repair, like there is no more future for us in Christ. But Christ's priesthood, what it does, it reminds us that no matter how far you have fallen, no matter how far down the trail you've gone in sin, wherever you are, there is a new beginning for you. And that's what Jesus' priesthood reminded the readers of, and it reminds us of today. Jesus is our high priest. And so we need to give him those devices and desires of our own hearts, which is the language from morning prayer and evening prayer. And we need to watch then for his healing and for his grace to be poured out like medicine on the wounds of our souls, wherever they're to be found. And it's never too late to come to God for healing. I mean, one of the things that I've taken away from this passage is that our propensity to disobey God is not greater than his love for us. I personalize that. My propensity to disobey God is not stronger than God's love for me. It's powerful. So to come back to Gregory Nazianzus, uh, one of the often quoted sayings from him that I love, it, it's, again, it's written against those who would deny the complete humanity of Jesus. He says this phrase, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Uh, whatever Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. Because Jesus assumed complete humanity as God, He can bring healing, ultimately, uh, bringing us to complete loving union with our creator. So the good news is not that though we live in shame, um, atoning for our own sins in this life, 
all of a sudden there's going to be like a light switch. Uh, and then all of a sudden everything is going to be healed in heaven. That's not the good news from this passage. Um, there's a real promise of healing now. That's the good news of Jesus' priesthood. The recipients of this letter needed reminding of it. And I think you and I need reminding of it as well. We always have a great high priest. And our great high priest sympathizes with our human weaknesses and frailty. He lives eternally as our great mediator. Ensuring our salvation. And bringing divine healing where the fall has ravaged you and I. And 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 he keeps us in that place where we will experience divine life and love. So... This morning, let's be reminded to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus in faith. Entrusting ourselves to his healing power. And again, we're celebrating this All Saints Day today. Uh, And let's, as we do that, let's follow the examples of the faithful who have gone before us. God sustained them with his grace. And his grace was born in them. We saw God's glory. And his grace in the lives of these people. And it's a reminder that God's love and his grace rests on common people. Like you and like me. And so God has a sustained interest in our well-being. Let's look to him for our healing. Both now and in that great heavenly country to come. Let me pray for us as we close. Almighty God, with whom the souls of the faithful who have departed this life are in joy and felicity. We praise and magnify your holy name for all of your servants who have finished their course in your faith and fear. And we most humbly pray that at the day of the resurrection, we and all who are members of the mystical body of your son may be set on his right hand and hear his most joyful voice. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Grant this, O merciful Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen.